Let me invite you to turn with me one more time this evening to the book of Jude. The epistle of Jude will begin reading in a few moments at verse 24. Father, thank you um, for this uh, time together. Thank you for this book and the opportunity that we've had in recent days to consider it, uh, to hear what you have to say to your people through this little letter. And I pray that as we open it again tonight that you would speak again, that you would make your mind clear to us again, and that we would believe and love what we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this book of Jude, I think you'll agree with me, is a fairly intense little letter. Because after a couple of verses of introduction and encouragement, Jude, in verse 3, gets right down to addressing a major problem in the church to which He is writing, and he addresses it very gravely. In verse 3, very near the beginning of the letter, he immediately calls his friends in the Lord to draw swords, as it were, doesn't he? To contend earnestly for the faith that's under attack in their midst, to parry the thrust of the false teachers, not to allow the truth to be overturned. So he dives in quite quickly. And then in verses 4 through 19, Jude wields the sword himself. Jude does his own fair share of beating back the wolves that are prowling around God's flock. And he uses some very harsh language. Appropriate language, but harsh language, intense language. And then even in verses 20 through 23 on Sunday, as we heard the tone of Jude's voice change, and he begins to address the responsibilities that believers have to their own souls, even then, it seems to me that Jude's reminders to his friends are urgent. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let brothers and sisters fall away from the Lord. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is an intense letter. It's a letter that's filled with urgency. As Jude looks out on this situation and the people who are in it, Some of them wolves tearing others apart, and others of them like sheep who are so easily led astray. He's he's troubled, he's indignant, he's earnest, he's passionate, and rightly so in every single verse. But when he gets to the close of the letter, and he turns his face toward the living God, when in these final two verses... Jude fixes his attention on the king when he looks heavenward and sees the God who looks down in sovereign grace upon all the tangled mess below. When when Jude thinks about the Lord who reigns above, he cannot help but rejoice and praise and extol his God. In the last two verses of this letter, Jude's urgency and intensity turned to doxology, to praise. Just listen to how he finishes in verses 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I hope you just hear the lofty vocabulary, the vocabulary of praise that he uses there. It's an interesting conclusion to the letter, isn't it? It's an interesting commentary, I think, for one thing, on the apostolic balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. If you've been with us as we've studied this book, you will know that in verses 3 through 23, Jude writes as though eternity hinges on how the church responds to the false teachers in their midst. And in one sense, it does. Humans are responsible for what they do with Jesus and his gospel. And a failure to care for our souls or for the souls of those around us can have fiery consequences. And yet, in the very next breath, here in verses 24 and 25, Jude can come back and praise the Lord that he has everything under complete control and that he is able to keep his people from stumbling. Man is responsible, Jude says, with passion for his own spiritual well-being. And yet he also comes now and says God is completely in control. He's the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and so on. Jude doesn't feel compelled to choose between the two or to lean too heavily in one direction or the other or to lean in one direction to the detriment of the other. You and I must keep ourselves in the love of God, he says. We must take practical steps to keep ourselves loving the Lord, verses 20 through 21. We must take practical steps, verses 3 through 19, to combat error in the church, which causes people to stumble. We must, verses 22 and 23, reach down and rescue those who are beginning to stumble. We must do these things, and yet Jude also firmly believes and would have us understand that it is ultimately God who is able to keep you from stumbling. Jew believes and teaches both, and he would have his readers do the same. It's an amazing balance here. But in these final two verses, Jude focuses now on the Lord. He's focused on us and what we must do, but now at the end, he's really focusing on what God does and what God is like. And as I said a few moments ago, the trajectory of these final verses is praise or doxology. When Jude thinks about the sovereign mercy of God, keeping his people, saving his people, he cannot help but break out into praise and to close his letter in that fashion. Did you notice that as we read these final two verses? Jude 24 and 25 form a sentence And the sentence is a declaration of Jude's praise to God. Now, if you look there, you'll see Jude says a lot about God in these two verses, yes. But he also is ascribing something to God. Did you notice that as we read along? For instance, Jude doesn't just say God is able to keep you from stumbling, but he actually addresses these final two verses to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And then in verse 25, he doesn't just say that God is the only God, our Savior, but in fact, he ascribes something to the only God, 
our Savior. These verses are written to God, not just about God. Jude says a lot about God for the benefit of his readers, and we'll look at that. But he also ascribes something to this God as well, namely glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And so this marvelous letter that is so filled with polemics now ends with praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is a doxology. How are we going to divide our time as we consider these last two verses, as we consider this doxology? Well, as I said, Jude really does do two things here. He says a lot about God, and he also ascribes praise to God. And so we're going to divide our time into those two parts, considering, first of all, the God of Jude's praises, and then also pausing to consider the praises of Jude's God. The God of Jude's praises and the praises of Jude's God. So, first of all, and we'll actually spend more time on this, Jude is really praising the Lord, but he he says more about the Lord, actually, than he ends up saying to the Lord, uh, and we will do the same. So let's start with the God of Jude's praises. What kind of God is this, whom Jude extols so joyously here at the end of this letter? I just want to show you four things that Jude says about this God. First, he is the keeping God. The keeping God, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now we already noted how interesting a phrase this is, coming as it does on the heels of Jude's admonitions in verses 20 through 23. In those verses, Jude urges us to do the keeping right? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And as a part of that task, rescue those who are stumbling. But now he reminds us that God is able to keep us from stumbling. And without contradicting what he has said about our own responsibility, the phrase in verse 24 here certainly undergirds our responsibility. The phrase, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, certainly gives us hope, doesn't it? Because we may read that urgent call in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. And we may say to ourselves, I must do that. But I don't know that I can. I'm so weak. I'm so prone to wanders, we sometimes sing. I'm afraid that when the coldest winds blow upon my soul, I won't be able to keep my little flame lit. I know I have to keep myself in the love of God, but can I? Do you ever feel like that? You see somebody else going through something, and you say, I don't know if I could ever go through that and come out with my faith intact. I think sometimes we probably should think like that. And if we don't, it may just be that God hasn't allowed us yet to see how fragile we really are. 
We're only being honest, it seems to me, if we read the Bible's calls to press on and stand firm and keep ourselves in the love of God. We're only being honest, I say, if we read those calls and accept the responsibility fully and yet at the same time sometimes feel totally inadequate for the task. But when we feel inadequate, here's the good news that undergirds all those calls to personal diligence and responsibility. Here is the truth about God that makes it possible for you to follow through. He is able to keep you from stumbling. You may not feel you can keep yourself, but he's able. And not only is he able, but if you belong to Christ, he's actually already doing it. Isn't that what we learned back in verse 1? Jude referred to his readers there as those who are kept for Christ Jesus. So not only is he able to keep you, but you are kept if you belong to the Lord. Our God is a keeping God. He is busy in our lives, ordering our circumstances, feeding us with his word, giving us strength in just the right moments so that we do not finally stumble into apostasy and hell. He is the one ultimately who is able to keep you from stumbling. He doesn't do it without means, of course. He doesn't just sort of, sort of put a force field around you so that nothing difficult ever comes your way or that you don't have to do anything. He doesn't keep you without means. And often the means that he uses, as we've been saying, are your own spiritual disciplines and effort. But it is God who gives you the strength to follow through on them. It's God who's created those means in the first place. It's God who's taught you how to use them. And thus it's ultimately God who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the keeping God. And you who belong to his son are those who are kept for Christ Jesus. And then notice also that the God of Jude's praises is the saving God. The saving God. He's able to keep you from stumbling, Jude says in verse 24, and... To make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God is able, in other words, to bring you to heaven and to make you happy there. He's able to save you from your sin. That's why Jude calls him in verse 25, the only God, our Savior. He is the one who is able to save us from our sin. He is the one who is able to bring us to his presence. Now, the fact that God saves us from our sin is implicit in the phrase to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, right? From stumbling into what? Into sin, right? He's the one who is able to keep you from stumbling into behavioral misconduct or theological error, which is itself sin. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from sin to rescue you from its power in this life. But now we're also reading he is able to bring you to heaven, having freed you from sin's consequences in the life to come. That's what verse 24b is all about. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Now just think about that phrase for a few moments. He is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Now just look at your life, and I'll look at mine, with all the taint of sin that attaches to us. Past sin, present sin, 
sin that we will inevitably commit in the future. How can a person like you, how can a sinner like me stand in the presence of God's glory? If I just look at me and then I look at the white, hot, holy glory of God, the logical conclusion is not that I would stand before him, right? But that I would cower before him, that I would be undone before him, that I would melt in his presence. And there may be a little of that, even for believers, when we finally stand before God's judgment someday. But that quivering, that giving way of our knees, won't be the final story, will it? If we are in Christ, if our sins have been covered in his blood, then before God's throne we are acquitted, we are justified, we are blameless, as Jude says it here in verse 24. And so God will not in that day put his foot upon our throats like a conquering king, but will actually take us by the hand and lift us up and cause us to stand in his presence. Not with our chests out, not with our heads held high, but we will stand humbly. We'll stand clothed in Christ's righteousness. We will perhaps stand leaning on Christ's arm for support, but we will stand. We will be at ease in God's presence. Because we will realize in that day, more than we ever did in this life, that we really are forgiven. That we really are counted blameless in God's sight. That he really does have nothing against us if we're in Christ. And no, I told you so, to hang over our heads forever. We may well be surprised at first how well God treats us when we get there and the fact that he allows us actually to stand in his presence. I know that Jesus' story of the prodigal son was was just a story, um, but you can imagine a boy like that going home to his father. Don't you think he might have been a little bit surprised with how his father treated him so well? But his surprise didn't make his father's kindness any less real, did it? God, the God who sent his own son to die for your sins, is able to make you stand in his presence. To make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. You may struggle to have joy in this life. And I don't excuse that or pretend that that is a mark of sober spirituality. We should have joy now. We should rejoice always, Paul says in Thessalonians. But sometimes we struggle. And yet Jude 24 tells me that we won't struggle forever to have joy. We won't struggle to have joy in that day. God is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. He is able to help you finally see his goodness in full color, to help you understand at last that he really was working all things together for your good. And you know, even if God doesn't someday in eternity explain to you all that he was doing, in and through the ups and downs of this life, there will be joy just to see his face, just to be with Jesus and to finally see him just as he is. Joy. And you know, the Apostle John says that when we see Jesus just as he is, we will be like him. We will be like him 
In that day, we will finally be free from all our sin, not only from its consequences, as we've been saying, but also from its presence and its power. God is working in us now to keep us from stumbling and to make us more like Jesus by degrees as the years go by. But in that great day, the project will finally be complete. And won't that make our hearts rejoice too? Our sin in this life ought to make us grieve. Our sin in this life is the reason why we often fail to rejoice. But what a great day. What a happy day it will be when we're finally rid of it, right? When we finally stand before God blameless, verse 24. Not only blameless in our official legal status with God, but blameless actually in our nature and conduct. Our God, I tell you, is a saving God. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. And then thirdly, not only is our God a saving God, but also, verse 25, he is the only God. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Now, why would Jude emphasize this at the end of his letter, that our God is the only God? Well, there may have been something in the teaching of the heretics who were infiltrating the church that was calling God's exclusivity into question. Or it may be that Jude's audience was surrounded by neighbors who believed in the many gods of the pagan system. Or maybe both. Or Jude may have had some other purpose in mind, but the word only in verse 25 is not a throwaway word, is it? Both Jude and the Holy Spirit put it here for a reason. They want us to remember that there is only one true God. And as we saw in Psalm 96 some weeks ago, all the gods of the peoples are idols. Or as the Lord himself says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I know this is a given for most of us that there's only one true God. But it's worth reminding ourselves because it's not a given in the culture in which we live, is it? And so we will do well to remember this word only and to train our children to understand it and to believe it. And we will do well to make sure that we explain it to the lost and dying world around us. This is, this is part of the gospel that we explain to people, not just, hey, believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven, but hey, there's only one God. Let's settle that first. And then we go on from there. The keeping God, the saving God, is, Jude says, the only God. And he is also, in the fourth place, the mediated God. The mediated God. Did you notice the qualifier, the explanatory clause that Jude adds here in the middle of verse 25? He's offering praise to God. He's praising the keeping God. He's praising the saving God. He's praising the only God. And he is offering all this praise, he says in verse 25, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, Jude is offering his praise to God. He's sending his doxology to God's throne through a mediator, through a go-between. And that's important. We cannot approach God any old way we choose, can we? 
We can't simply come to God all by our lonesome, carrying our sin, trampling his courts with mud on our feet and expecting him to be happy to see us. No. Isaiah says your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God doesn't hear you on account of your sins. And if he is going to hear you, if he's going to receive your praise and Jude's, it must come to him through a mediator, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's how Jude offers it. This is the only way that anyone can come to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we talked along the same lines a few weeks back and someone asked me perceptively afterwards, does this mean that we can't talk to the Father directly, but that when we pray we should only talk to Jesus and then ask him to tell God what we said? It's not a bad question because we talk about, oh, you can only come to God through Jesus. What does that mean? Do we we have to kind of literally talk to Jesus and ask him to pass the note on to God? Well, no, it's not exactly that mechanical. Forgive me if I didn't make that clear a few weeks back. Yes, you can talk directly to the Father, but only insofar as you recognize that you are coming to him And you are expecting him to hear you, not based on who you are, not on the strength of what you have done, but because of who Jesus is and on the strength of what he has done to bring you to God. Anytime you truly come to God, even if you're speaking to the Father directly, you can come to him only if you're trusting Jesus Christ our Lord, only if you're coming to him through Jesus Christ our Lord, only if you're saying to him, Lord, I don't deserve to come on my own, but I'm in Christ, I'm trusting Christ, and so on the basis of his merit, I bring these requests to you. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's not just a convenient way to let people know that you're just about finished. It is a way to remind yourself, to remind others who might be hearing you, and to remind the Lord, I'm not coming to you in my name, I'm coming to you in his name. I'm coming to you on account of his mediation on my behalf, his blood covering my sins, his righteousness imputed to my account, his high priestly mediation having brought me through the torn veil. And Jude reminds us of that here in verse 25. To the only God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, to some people, that might sound like God is standoffish. God requires a mediator, a go-between. It might sound like God doesn't want to be too close to sinners, right? But I tell you, it's not reticence in God that requires a mediator. It's sin in us, right? If we think God is somehow snooty to require us to come to him through the means of a mediator, then we really don't understand how horrific sin is. Sin is so bad. Sin is so horrible. Sin is so offensive to a holy God who made us in his image and whose image we have dragged through the sewer waters that it is a wonder of wonders that God should allow us to approach him at all. But he does. He's provided a mediator. Indeed, the second person of the Trinity has come himself to be the mediator. That's not standoffishness. That is incredible love and mercy and condescension to our need. 
And let me say this about our mediator. We may sometimes think of a mediator as someone who stands between two parties who are perhaps at odds with one another and keeps them both at a safe distance from each other so that they can talk without fighting. He keeps them kind of at arm's length. That's how we probably think of a mediator. He's a referee. We might think of a mediator as someone who's a buffer between two parties. And sometimes that's what a mediator is, but not this mediator. That's not how Jesus operates, is it? God didn't send his son in the world to keep sinners at a safe distance from himself. No. This mediator actually ushers the offending party right up into the very throne room of the king and enables them to climb on his lap and call him father. Jesus doesn't doesn't create a referee situation between us and God. Jesus brings us and sets us in God's lap. That's how this mediator works. And so I say to you, having a mediator is the best thing in the world. Having someone who can take you by the hand and lead you right into the throne room of the king, that's the greatest of all privileges. So what have we said so far? We've been thinking about the God of Jude's praise, and he is the keeping God. He is the saving God. He is the only God. And he is the mediated God, the God who sent his own son to bring you to himself. And this great God... Jude closes out the letter by giving great praise. So having looked at the God of Jude's praise, let's also look, before we conclude our studies in this letter, at the praise of Jude's God. To this God, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, Jude says. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Now God already possesses all those things, does he not? We don't grant God dominion, do we? We don't give God authority. He simply possesses these things by divine right. And the same is true of his glory and his majesty. God, by virtue of his own nature, is glorious and majestic. And he was so before any created beings ever existed to tell him so. And so when Jude says to him, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, Jude is not suggesting that we grant these things to God, but that we ascribe these things to God. In other words, that we recognize these things in God and live and sing and praise him like those who know how true they are. That's what Jude is doing here. He's praising the Lord. He's ascribing to God glory, majesty, dominion and authority and you and I must do the same you and I must ascribe to God glory we must treat him as though he really is glorious beautiful exalted majestic glory and majesty are really similar ideas I think they speak of the splendor of God the vision of God for instance as Isaiah saw him sitting on a throne lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, and the angelic beings worshiping with their faces covered, and the chorus, holy, 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 resounding throughout the hall, and the foundations of the thresholds trembling. 
That's how Isaiah viewed God, and that's how we ought to view our God, and in our measure, how we ought to praise him with a joy and a humility and an intensity and a grandeur that is befitting one who is truly glorious and majestic. I wonder if we think about this, for instance, when we gather in this place to sing. If we're conscious, as Jude is, that the one whom we praise is glorious and majestic. Or if, during the singing, our minds sort of wander to all sorts of other things. The people next to us, and and what happened at work today, and, and what's the sermon about again tonight? Or I wonder if we mainly think, during the songs, about how much we like or don't like a given musical selection. To the only... God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty. That's how we ought to praise him. And to him, Jude says, be dominion and authority as well. Dominion and authority. Now, like glory and majesty, I think these two things are similar attributes or prerogatives of God. And the idea of both is that Jude is ascribing to God and praising God for his sovereignty, his kingship. His right to and authority over all his creation. Dominion and authority. And how do we ascribe these divine rights to our God? With our lips, yes, right? We declare, we we sing of his dominion and his authority. But we also should ascribe these things to God with our lives, right? As we voluntarily submit to his will. It's one thing to say, God, you have dominion, you have authority, you reign. It's another thing to live under that dominion and that authority, right? Now, God has dominion and God has authority over us even when we don't submit to his will. Even then, he's in absolute sovereign control. And as Nebuchadnezzar learned, he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. But we don't really ascribe to him the authority and the dominion of his deity unless we voluntarily submit to it. So we mustn't just sing words like, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. We must live like we believe and embrace and love these attributes and prerogatives of God. I wonder if you're doing that right now. If God is Lord over all the little corners of your life. And then before we finish, just notice the time factors that Jude includes in this praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. For all time and now and forever. Those are the time slots at which we ought to praise God. And that pretty much has history covered, doesn't it? Before all time. Before there ever were human eyes to see God's glory and his majesty. Before there ever were human hearts to submit to his dominion and authority. Before there ever were human voices to praise him for these things. Before all time, when nothing existed but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love and contentment together. Even then, God was glorious and majestic and sovereign. Even then, 
he was worthy of praise. It is not our existence that makes him glorious. He was glorious before all time. And of course, he is so now, Jude goes on to say. Even in these sinful days between the two creations, between Adam's fall and the return of the second Adam to make all things new. Even now, as sin seems to have the upper hand and false teachers often gain a foothold and people play with fire, as Jude describes in this letter, even now as the world sometimes seems teetering on the edge of self-destruction and as it awaits God's destruction, even now, God is saving sinners God is keeping them for Jesus Christ. God is working his sovereign will. God is revealing his glory and his majesty in the gospel. And so even now, God is infinitely worthy of our praise. And of course, God will be worthy of our praise, Jude says, forever. Forever. Then, in fact, we will know him fully. Then... We will stand in the presence of his glory. Then we will see his majesty. Then we will understand how his dominion and authority caused all things to work together for good. Then we will see just how faithfully he kept us from stumbling at all the danger points along our pilgrimage. And then we will have an eternity uninterrupted, undistracted to sing his praise. And so Jude says... Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.